you for that. Good morning. As Al said, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find what has been embarked upon last week, which is the Ten Commandments. And we're going to have about a 12, 11 or more, 11 more messages for the Ten Commandments, one on each end and one for each commandment, so that we can take our time going through these commandments and discussing what this commandment is saying to us today as we view its original and authentic understanding in regards to what it meant to them. So we're in the second part of Ten Commandments, and in particular, today's title is Worship God Alone. Worship God Alone. Let me begin by saying this. Before there were apps and before there were streaming opportunities available to us, before we had shows and movies at our disposal without the unpleasant inconvenience and interruption of commercials, we used to have to watch shows on Channel 4 or 6 or 7 or 10. You remember this? Some of you do, some of you don't. You were born with phones and you don't know this horrible inconvenience that we had to endure. But the reality was, if you're my age or older, then you know what it was like. Somebody would say, listen, we were going to go over here and get some pizza. Do you want to go? And if it was Thursday at 9 p.m., you couldn't go because your show was coming on. (laughs) And you couldn't miss your show. Because the only way you had to record it was finding your wedding VHS recording and risking it all by recording over it. And if you remember those days, well, you probably were sore this morning with the weather being cold. (laughs) There were some good shows back then, and I'm sure that if I were to mention some of them, you would recall them, but one in particular that Diamond and I used to enjoy watching, and still do from time to time, and it's still available to those of you who know how to work technology, was Law & Order. I'm sure many of you recall that show. It started with a dark screen, and the words law and order began to creep up over the dark screen, and the narrator would say, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate the crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And then this ominous noise would happen that recurs throughout the episode, Dun, dun. Right? Well, this morning, what I want to do is turn a corner. And I want to borrow a little bit from that because while we watch that show with enjoyment and pleasure and entertainment, knowing that right is right and wrong is wrong, and those that do wrong ought to be punished, and those that do right ought to be rewarded, I want to turn a corner today and borrow from that and say this, church, our God is a God of law and order. Sometimes we read the commandments and we find them a bit offensive because the commandments tell us, not just others, but they tell us, say they tell me, that I'm wrong, that I'm a sinner, 
that have offended a holy God, a righteous God, a God has re- who has revealed to him, to us, to his creation, that he has an expectation of his creation to live a certain way, to think a certain way, to act a certain way, because he is the creator and we are the creation and we submit to him and offer to him our worship and our allegiance. As we progress through the Ten Commandments, I hope that you'll keep that in mind This morning, we're looking at the first commandment, found in verses 6 and 7. I have three simple points for you this morning. We know who he is. We know what he has done. And finally, we worship what we know. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 7 once more. If you look at it with your eyes, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 Say this, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. We talked about this last week. Hear them, learn them, do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did he make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, Here's the commandment in verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. To begin this morning, I want us to look at our first point. We know who he is. First and foremost, I want you to note that we know who he is. For some, we know too much to think that there's a God. Our advancements in technology, the development of medicine, and the depth of philosophical endeavors leads them to believe that there really isn't a need for God. To which Romans chapter 1 verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. For others, there's no way of knowing God even if we wanted to. To which Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. For others still, there's a belief in God, but it's at an arm's distance. It's according to their terms and conditions. It's it's only as long as it is part of their preference and policy. So Paul says in Romans 1.21, Although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts became darkened. Regardless of where we may find ourselves, there is no God, which would be atheism. Oh, maybe there is a God, but we can't know, which would be agnosticism. Or, of course, I believe that there's a God, but I'm not really paying attention to that, which would be utter disobedience and futility, 
Regardless of what camp someone may fall into, the reality of the matter is Scripture tells us we know there's a God. Church, we know who he is, furthermore. But that doesn't mean anything. We have these challenges to deal with on a regular basis because we're radically depraved. And what does it mean to be radically depraved? That is to say, not that we are as evil as we possibly can be, but that sin has riddled us with effects throughout our person. Our minds, our souls, and of course our bodies show the effects of sin each and every day. Our minds, because we think thoughts that dishonor God. Our souls, because sin has distanced us from our God and our Savior. And our bodies, because, well, let's face it, we're not getting any younger, and eventually we're all going to die. Church, these are the effects of sin. But how do we know that God exists? Well, that's a good question. The reality of the matter is, is most people, even those who are within the community of faith, may have questions about God's existence, the reality of God, the involvement of God in the world, which we would call providence. How do we know that God exists? Well, there's a handful of arguments. Some of them are going to come up on the screen. One is called the teleological argument. The teleological argument. The teleological argument is a word that comes from a compound Greek word, telos, meaning end or design or purpose, and logos, which means reason or dialogue or argument. So the teleological position is a position that says that we know that there is a God because when we look at the universe, we see a purpose, a design. And every design requires a designer. Ergo, the designer is God. This would be the argument that was popularized by Aristotle. The cosmological argument also falls in that vein. The cosmological argument essentially says that everything that is moving is moving because there was someone who moved it. And the one who does not move is God. He is the unmoved mover, Aristotle said. There's also the ontological argument. In the ontological argument, we're, we're dealing with what in philosophy we called the argument of ontology or the argument of being. How do we know that we are? How do we know that we even exist? This is the question of ontology to which the French philosopher René Descartes said, cogito ergo sum. I am because I think. That was his proof of existence. I think. Therefore, I am. I exist because I have a cognitive process that takes place, and that is proof that I have the capacity of existence. So this says essentially that the capacity to think and to reason and to experience things like good and justice tells us that there is a highest form of these things. 
what we're experiencing is a degree of these things, but it is reasonable to conclude that the sum of all these things is God. Moral argument is exactly what it sounds like. This argument notes the phenomenon of conscience, of moral responsibility, apologies and forgiveness, right and wrong, and concludes that this morality that has existed throughout human history has had to have had an origin. And the conclusion is that since all of these morals are held in common, the origin is God, the Creator. Now, we've gone through a number of arguments, and of course, these arguments might lead you to, let's say, deism, where you say, well, I think that there's a God, but I don't know if we can know him, and certainly that argument would be true. We could talk about the teleological, cosmological, ontological, and moral arguments all day long, but none of those arguments actually say, and Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? These are just philosophical arguments that have led many people who were atheistic or agnostic before to say, well, I'll give you this. At least there is a creator. But what we're learning in Scripture, church, is something different. What we're learning in Scripture is not just that there is a God, but that there is the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who is eternally blessed and eternally existent. All of these positions are philosophical and not biblical, but they do carry some weight and necessity. Now, we're Christians, and we aren't merely reasoning our way to conclusions. We have God's Word, the Bible, and the Bible is what we call special revelation. General revelation would be what David says in Psalm 19, the Heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Which is to say, you were to get outside the city light pollution at night and go to the Everglades or something like that, you would see that we live under a magnificent canopy of stars, which are absolutely breathtaking and stunning. And when we look at the creation, David says, any reasonable person would say, look at what God created but that's what we would call general revelation. It's generally available for absolutely everyone who has ever lived or ever will live under the stars or in creation. But if we take it a step further, we have to conclude that the gospel is not written in the Milky Way. We don't look up at the stars at night and see the words, believe in Jesus and you will be saved where we see those words, believe in Jesus and you will be saved, is in the Bible. The Bible is not general revelation. The Bible is special revelation. And this is an important distinction for us to make. The Bible isn't any kind of philosophy. It isn't just any kind of idea. The Bible was given to us by God. God gave us the Bible And he gave us the Bible that we might know him. Let me share a couple of quotes with you. One is from Francis Schaeffer. It's going to come up on the screen here. This is in his book, He is There and He is Not Silent. You can read it with your eyes as I read it aloud. Francis Schaeffer says, 
Christianity's presupposition begins with a God who is there, who is the infinite personal God, who has made man in his image. He has made man to be a verbalizer in the area of propositions in his horizontal communication to other men. Even secular anthropologists say that somehow or other, they do not know why, man is a verbalizer. You have something different in man. The Bible says, and the Christian position says, I can tell you why. Because God is a personal, infinite God. There has always been communication before the creation of all else in the Trinity. And God has made man in his own image, and part of making man in his own image is that man is a verbalizer. That stands in the unity of the Christian structure. Why do we find it so important to understand and to be understood? Because our God is a communicator. In fact, it is so interesting, this topic, that when you consider it, one of the things with which we might have most common with God is communication. The idea that we not only can communicate, but can understand communication and realize that when we are outside of healthy communication, we start to deal with the ramifications. Herman Bavinck, in his Reformed Dogmatics, puts it this way. If we finally briefly sum up what Scripture teaches about Revelation... We first of all have to understand by revelation quite generally that deliberate and free act of God by which he makes himself known to human beings. Did you get that? We know God because God has revealed himself to us in order that by it they may come to stand in the right relation to God. Corresponding to the revelation of God on the human side is religion the knowledge and service of God. In Scripture, the two are very closely connected. Knowledge and service of God are possible only because God reveals himself. Still, the two, revelation and religion, are absolutely not identical. Just because we find religion does not mean we see revelation. That's the distinction that he's making. But what he is saying is this. The only reason we have true religion is because God has revealed himself. If we don't follow the revelation of God, then we don't know God. And this is the point that we're talking about. He says in chapter 5, verse 6 of Deuteronomy, I am the Lord your God. In other, way, in other words, you know me. But how do we know him? We know him because God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to his people in the past, and he has revealed himself to us by way of his word in the present. Which leads us to our next point. Not only do we know him, but we know what he has done. Secondly, we know what he has done. Look at verse 6 again with your eyes, please, if you would. It says, I am the Lord your God, that is to say, you know me, and then secondly, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house 
of slavery. We've covered the first part. You know I am the Lord your God. But this second part now is what I want us to address, namely, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you have any familiarity whatsoever with your Bible, then you know that this is a reference to the Exodus. The Exodus is found in the book of Exodus. The word Exodus is a Greek word, and it means the way out. The way out. So when we read the book of Exodus, we're reading the Hebrews on their way out of Egypt. Why? How? Because God redeemed them from the bondage of slavery and led them out of that land and into the promised land. So as a consequence, the exodus became the focal point of redemption in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a tie between the Passover, which had been initiated with the exodus, and the exodus itself as the pivotal act of redemption for God's people in the Old Testament. Here is yet another reminder, church, of the chronology of salvation. God has redeemed his people and then gives them the law. He redeemed his people and then gives them the law. Look at the text, if you would, please, chapter 5, and beginning in verse 3. He says, Moses does, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. It's not to say that God has never made a covenant with the forefathers. He hasn't made covenants with the forefathers. We know that. He's made a covenant with Adam. He's made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But not this covenant. This is a new covenant. It's a unique covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and the people. And what Moses is saying is that this covenant has not existed before. He didn't make this with the forefathers. This is a covenant he is making with us. And what I would like you to notice is the chronology of redemption, namely that God redeemed his people from Egypt and then gave them a law. Let me say that again. He redeemed his people from Egypt and then gave them a law. Let me say this one more time so that we grasp this. God saved his people. And then he gave them a law. In other words, God did not give them a law and then say, if you do this law perfectly, I'll save you, which is what most of us think. Most of us think that salvation happens to what we call good people, which is very interesting because we only ascribe that to ourselves. We really don't believe that anybody's good. We gossip, we backbite, we talk nonsense about everybody, every opportunity we get, and then when somebody dies, we say, well, they're probably in heaven because they were good people, but the Bible says nobody's good, not even one, that there's none righteous, that everyone falls short of God's standard and glory. But I have good news for you. You're not saved by the law. You're saved by faith. And the forefathers were men and women, the foremothers. The patriarchs and the matriarchs, they were people of faith. And they were saved before the Mosaic covenant was given by God to the people through Moses. And this important point in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 3, cannot be emphasized enough. The chronology of salvation is you are saved. Now here's a law. 
so that you understand what it means to be my people. Ajit Fernando writes this, God saves us, and the laws are a consequence of that salvation. In biblical religion, what is primary is the way of life through the salvation God gives. Did you get that? The way of life through the salvation that God gives. In other words, we're saved, and as an act of salvation, God gives to us also his expectations, his standards, and his adoption. We might even say that when we are adopted into the family of God, the Heavenly Father expects us to have the family resemblance. We must never forget what the Lord has done for us. Not only must we never forget who he is, but we must never forget what he has done for us. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 77, verse 11. The psalmist says, I will declare the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I want to ask you today, church, do you remember what God has done? It is the greatest offense, it is the highest treason to either forget what God has done for us or perhaps worse yet, to remember what he has done but ascribe it to something or someone else and to live a life without gratitude to God. Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know what he's done for you in Christ? How he's provided forgiveness and redemption and sanctification and adoption and the glory to come. How he's guided you providentially in your family to the people in your lives and, and protected you from some of the bad decisions that you know had he not protected you from, to this day you would still be enduring the consequences. Do you know what he has done? This is what he's saying. I am the Lord your God. You know me. But what's more, you know what I've done. I have delivered you from bondage in the land of Egypt. What has God delivered you from, church? What is God in the process of delivering you from? What has God spoken to you by way of his spirit and his word about what's in store for you. I hope that you and your family tell the stories of what God has done in your life to each other. Remember what was said before by Schaefer and Bavink. Perhaps one of the things that we have most in common with a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us is the ability to communicate. And may we never fail to talk about the God who has talked to us and done things for us that no one and nothing could ever, ever do. Well, that leads us to our last point, which is found in verse 7. Namely, the first commandment. You know who I am. I am the Lord your God. You know what I've done. I've brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. 
No other gods before me. This is the first of ten commandments. It begins the first section, which is the first four commandments, which has to do with our relationship with God. We'll get to the final commandments with our relationship to each other later. But it begins with the first and foremost important thing in your life and mine, namely our relationship to God. If I have a wonderful relationship with my wife and a wonderful relationship with my kids, but I have no relationship with God, well, it doesn't matter, does it? I want us to look, lastly, at this point, which is we worship what we know. We worship what we know. And isn't that the truth? If we take the word worship, friends, and we just dilute it a bit so that it's a little more tangible, a little more palatable, then we quickly find that each and every human being worships. We just don't always call it worship. Each and every human being worships. We just don't always associate a stained glass window with the, with the action. Some of us worship Instagram. Some of us worship Netflix. Some of us worship clothes. Some of us worship sex. Some of us worship alcohol. Some of us worship ourselves. It's called narcissism. Some of us worship other people. It's called codependency. Some of us worship money. It doesn't matter what it is that you worship. All of it is idolatry if it comes before your favor with God. Now, nothing wrong with Instagram necessarily. Nothing wrong with Netflix necessarily. Nothing wrong with sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That is God's blessing to a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Nothing wrong with alcohol in moderation. Drunkenness is forbidden in the Bible. It's explicitly clear. There's nothing wrong with having a good salary or having a side hustle and working hard for money. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, if a man won't work, don't let him eat. We forget that in churches. We want to be so benevolent and kind and giving all the time. We want to make Excuses for people who are lazy so that we look polite and winsome and kind. But the reality is, if a man has the ability but he won't work, he wants to be poor, put him on the street, do not burden the church with a lazy man. That's scripture. It's not wrong to pursue an annual salary that satisfies you and your family, it's not wrong for you to make investments. It's not wrong for you to have a side hustle to make a little extra money. What's wrong is when you say, I'll go to church when I start making this money. I'll go to church when I start getting the other thing. I'll go to church when God does this in my life, when we should realize that the reason our mentality is that way is because we don't know what he's done and we don't know him. If we knew him, if we knew what he has done, then we would not wait for that extra dollar. 
We would not wait for that extra blessing. We would praise him in the storm. We'd praise him in the shortage. We'd praise him in the difficulty because we worship what we know. You know why you aren't in church? You know why you're not worshiping? Because you don't know. If you knew, you would worship. Verse 7 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, the first thing that I want you to note here is that God is not saying it's okay to have other gods as long as they don't take precedent over him. That's not what he's saying. That would be a, a, a Hindu philosophy, by the way. When we send international missionaries to India and other parts of the world that have Hinduism as a cultural and religious uh, thread, then they, we find very quickly that is difficult. It's extremely difficult to witness to them because they like Jesus a lot. They put him right on the shelf with 3,000 million other gods. I just did a Biden. That's not even a number. I think Hinduism has something like 3.7 million gods. So let me, let me correct that. Something like 3 million gods. And they're like, Jesus is great. And they put Jesus on the shelf. But we don't want Jesus on a shelf with anybody else. It's Jesus alone. That's what we're talking about. So Hinduism is very challenging because you go to them and you say, Jesus is God's son sent from heaven to earth to pay a debt you couldn't pay so that you can be forgiven and received into eternity. You say, that's great. That's wonderful. We'll put them right here next to these other guys. But God is saying, you shall have no other gods. No other gods. Well, we can continue with this philosophy. Well, what about the teachings of Buddha? Did the Buddha not tell us that he knew the way and that he knew the truth. Yes, Buddha sat under the tree and said, I have been enlightened and I'll tell you the way. But what Buddha never said is what Jesus said in 14.6 of John's gospel. Not, I know the way or I'll tell you the way, but Jesus said, I am the way. It's not a negotiation. It's not an option among many. Jesus said, there is no other. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I know we've all been to clubs, so I can make this illustration safely. Heaven is that club everybody wants to get into, but Jesus is the bouncer at the door. If you don't know the bouncer at the door, you're not getting in. Everything in life is who you know, and heaven is not an exception. When you go to heaven, the question will not be, how good are you, or you shouldn't have done the thing I told you not to do, or whatever the case is. We should aim to be righteous people. We should aim to be holy people. We should aim to be people who are loving and just and forgiving and merciful. We should carry within ourselves, in our souls, and in our hearts and our minds, the qualities and attributes of our heavenly Father, but... We aren't getting into heaven because we're righteous. We're getting into heaven because Jesus is righteous and our faith is in him. And we get up there, they're not going to say, mm, do you remember Monday? When you did that thing that you said you weren't going to do anymore? 
No. It's going to be, Jesus said you could come. Jesus said you could be here. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are saved. But we aren't going to make the mistake that the Hindus make in putting Jesus among the many. And we're not going to make the mistake that the Buddhists make in saying that if you live a good life and it is good enough, you will make it to Shangri-La or Nirvana or whatever else. Because Jesus didn't say, I know the way. He said, I am the way. But what's more, church, is this. We aren't going to make this monotheistic faith of ours a mistake by taking our monotheistic faith and placing it in the wrong God, like the Muslims do. All the Muslims are monotheists, just like we are. They believe in one God. They even say that Allah is the God of Abraham. But the reality of the matter is, if you study the Quran, if you read the Quran, if you study who Allah is and compare who Allah is to Jehovah, you quickly find that the two are not the same. Let me illustrate this. If you were out in, let's say, the New Publix, and you were at, I heard there's like a nice salad bar, sandwich deli or something. Okay, so you're getting this magnificent sandwich. You're super excited about this pub sub. And you bump into somebody that you haven't seen in a while, and they say, hey, what, what have you been doing, man? You, oh, I'm going to church at First Baptist Color Ridge. And, and they say, oh, I heard you have a magnificent pastor there. <laughs> Hang on, I'm not done. I heard you have a magnificent pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our pastor, pff, he's great. Joe Myra. Yeah, Joe Myra. I think I met him. He's, he's like 6'5", 280. He's a black guy. That's not the same Joe Myra. Church, just because you use the same name doesn't mean the description is the same. What matters is the characteristics what matters are the attributes. If you say, I worship God, but the definition of your God is different from this Bible, you worship an idol. I don't care if you use the title Allah. By the way, Christians in the Middle East who speak Arabic use the word Allah for God. It just means God. That's why the distinguishing differential, the most important particular, is Jesus. All day long we go, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because he said, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you are not for me, you are, not, you are against me. And so all we need to do when we are having a conversation with somebody and we're wondering what they mean by, oh, no, I believe in God, is follow up with this question. It's good that you believe in God. Do you also believe in Jesus? And if they say, well, and then there's your answer. Because Jesus said, I am the way. Not, I am one way among many. So we do not go the route of the Hindus and add Jesus to our collection of gods. Which is so... So commonly what we do is that John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. 
is that we just we, we keep making idols. We just love to worship stuff. But, but we don't do that as Christians. As Christians, we don't do what the Hindus do. We don't put Jesus on a shelf among many. But, but we also don't do what the Buddhists do. We, we aren't saying, well, there's the way. We believe that Jesus is the way. But furthermore, we don't make a monotheistic mistake in saying that I believe in God, but I believe in the wrong God, like the Muslims do. I want to share some verses with you. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God says, I am God, and there is no other. If there's any doubt, any curiosity, any confusion, it has been resolved today. Done. If you are a Christian who's leaving area for disagreement on this issue, I have to tell you, you are either seriously unhealthy or you are not a Christian. God says, Jehovah God, I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Which means we find idolatry even in liberal Christianity which takes the sovereignty of God, which is so clearly demonstrated to us in Isaiah 46, and dilutes it and makes God subject to our wills rather than our wills subject to God's sovereignty. It doesn't sound to me like God is saying in this chapter of Isaiah, I will see what you're doing and I will adjust accordingly. He says... I declare the end from the beginning because there is no other God. And I declare the end from the beginning because I wrote the end and the beginning, and providentially I will bring it to pass. Not asking permission. He's not putting it out to vote. God says, I will accomplish my purpose, and there's no one up here but me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. This is a great verse to commit to memory. This is all the way on the other side of the New Testament, the very last book of the New Testament. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's trying to say north to south, east to west, all the way, entire circumference, from heaven's end, heaven's beginning, I don't know, however you want to poetically put it, God, me, I am. He's not leaving this option open for anything else. He's saying, I alone am the Almighty. Listen, we are to obey him alone. We are to adore and cherish him alone. We are to praise and celebrate him alone. We are to worship, that's what that means, him alone. And he commands us, you shall have no other gods before me. 
but we continue to create idols and attribute to them, to things, to people, instead of our triune God, favor and love and faithfulness that should only be given to him. These gods, Jehovah is saying, did not deliver you from Egypt. These gods did not deliver you from the house of bondage. I did that, the Lord is saying. I did that. And therefore, the first among the Ten Commandments is going to be this, no other gods. You know me. You know what I've done. No one else did that for you. I deserve all of your love and all of your affection. Church, let me ask you a question. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your energy and your effort? That's your God. If your pursuit is always something or someone other than God, then that pursuit is your God. I love what Augustine said in the Confessions. We come to you because we know our happiness is there. Such a beautiful and poetic way to say it. We know that regardless of how many pleasures God has given to us on the face of this earth, nothing and no one will ever, ever bring us pleasure and joy like our relationship with God. To close, let me say this. Our God is a God of law and order. And he is so because of his character. But because he is who he is and because he has done what he has done, he sovereignly commands his people to be in agreement with him about righteousness and goodness and justice. May we show to the world and may we show to Christians who are wobbly on this issue, this truth. There should never, ever be any question about God's primary position in the lives of his people.